Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I've got a lovely show for you today. Ann Bradley's coming on in just a minute. And then we're going to hear all about uh, veterans and their issues with suicide from Fernando Arroya. I worked on that all day, just so you know. So I'm looking forward to the first hour. Dr. Ann Bradley is the George and Sally Meyer Fellow for Economic Education and the Vice President of Academic Affairs at the Fund for American Studies. More than that, she's a great friend of Faith Radio and my favorite economist. Ann, welcome. Hi, Bill. Thank you for having me. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. I usually don't get you on a Friday, so this is uh, I know. really fun. And I would assume you've, uh, you're done with your day for the most part? Teaching I am and, mostly done with my, yes, yeah, yes. Good, the good. rest of my day, you oh, know, good. children and family, of that course. goes on. The, the important part of the day as well. All That's right, right. Anna, I would love to talk about the global economic freedom, how it has declined in the wake mm-hmm. of the pandemic. Absolutely. This, this news deal. just came out. Yes, it is. And this news just came out this week. Uh, so we're still going through all the data and trying to figure out what it all means. But basically, just to give you a little backstory, economic freedom is an empirical measure of how open a society is in terms of its markets. Do people have the freedom to buy, sell, open a business, close a business, these types of things freely? And so that's what we're measuring when we look at economic freedom. We've measured this since 1975. Um through Milton Friedman's efforts. And and now there are a variety of organizations that track this data. And, you know, uh, the other thing I'll say is that this is lagged data. Data is always historical. And so the 2022 index is using 2020 data. So the bad news is that the economic, the, the overall average of global economic freedom has declined according to the new data. And that is not even taking into account all of the spending and the inflation that we've seen through 2021 and 2022. So the global average has declined in economic freedom, and that's not good news. But we think that it's going to, most people who measure this look at, are saying it's going to decline in the following years because we'll really get the impact of all that fiscal spending and the monetary inflation that we've experienced. And mm-hmm. so You know, this kind of goes with what we've been talking about a lot on your show, which is (laughs) there's some bad news out there. And I think what this gives us is a way to think about how to fix it. Mm -hmm. And usually I only let good news on my show on Friday. Usually. I know. That's my rule of thumb. But I know we're going to work through this together. So I appreciate that. And let's look at what the decline means. Now, in an article I read that you sent me, it talks about erasing a decade's worth of improvement in the global average and is more than three times larger than the global decline witnessed in the 2008-2009 financial crisis. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Yeah. So basically when the economy goes through, when we went through the Great Recession, economic freedom obviously suffers from that. What they're, so the authors are saying is that the decline that we are seeing now is bigger 
than right. what we saw as a result of the Great Recession, which was a global phenomenon as well, yeah. as was COVID. And so we track countries, all countries for which we can get data. That's And so, you know, there's some countries we just exclude, like North Korea, because they don't have reliable data. They lie about their data, these types of things. So we exclude those. But we have a lot of data. Uh, it's not surprising, I don't think, that Venezuela is still at the last. It's the bottom of the list. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Venezuela was a country that was a democracy. It was a place you would have gone on vacation 35 years ago. And so now it is a country where people are actively trying to leave. They're making difficult decisions about do they stay with their families or do they try to find safe haven. So it's a it's a story of rapid economic and human immiseration. Yeah, I think that should serve as an example, though. I mean, because I do think, Bill, that lots of us who come from the Western world, right, from the U.S., we think, well, we're the good guys. (laughs) We mess up sometimes, Mm -hmm. but we could never be Venezuela. And I don't want to be dramatic. But I think what Venezuela shows is a case study of how if you do all the wrong things, you pay all the consequences yes. for those wrong things. Yes. Right? Yes. That's a lesson we need to learn from this is how can we recover? And so I don't think I think Good News Fridays are a good way to run a radio show. So I want to say that there is, you know, there's good news here, which is the index shows us where we lost some freedoms. And if we use that information with wisdom, then we can try to make repairs. Mm-hmm. Now, if, so there is a, a roadmap. Yeah. Now, here's something we probably can all understand and agree on without being economists uh, like you. And that's this. The coronavirus pandemic was undoubtedly a catastrophe for economic freedom. A catastrophe. Yeah. Yes. That's the right word. Okay. It, uh, it, yes. And it's, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Sure. Always. But... I think what we, and I think we saw this in the Great Recession. I think we saw it at 9-11. So these are kind of the defining moments of of my adult life so far, I would say. And so as I look at those big events, those big defining moments, one thing I see in common is just a rush to do something. So when there's a crisis, whether it's terrorism, a virus, a Great Recession, people kind of relax their principles. Mm Mm-hmm. And they say, well, let's just take a, a temporary, um, you know, well, we'll let the government maybe do more than what we would normally allow it to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So normally we would never allow the government to shut down businesses. We would just in a free society. That's the opposite. <laughs> that's kind of the opposite of the ethos of a free society is to la- allow the government to intervene in business in that way. But during a recession, or, excuse me, during the coronavirus pandemic, we did. And there were different responses across different states and across different countries. But what we're seeing is the countries that had the most severe lockdowns, the most severe implications for business and employers are taking the hits in economic freedom. The countries also that spent the most. So when you look at the different indicators of economic freedom, one of the indicators that is in this index is called size of government. And what we're measuring there is overall government expenditure. So government consumption, transfers and subsidies government investments, tax rates, things like this. Countries that have huge governments relative to their economies do poorly. Countries that have smaller governments relative to their economies do well. And when we think of prosperity, why do they do well? Because the the innovation and the entrepreneurship comes from the private sector. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come from the government. I mean, right? Right. 
So I think that that the the word catastrophe that you used is not hyperbole at all. And that's unfortunate because, again, this is a teaching moment for all of us. This is a moment where we can say, how do we roll that back and learn from it so that we don't do it again? Because I'll tell you that tyranny waits for a crisis. There will be another crisis. (laughs) And there will be more tyranny as a result of that. So we have to learn our lesson. Yes. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest, my favorite go-to economist. And if you have a question for Ann, send it over. Text it to 877-933-2484. We're talking about the uh, global economic freedom that's taken a hit in the wake of the pandemic. So, Ann, I'd love to get your take on the, the effect of economic freedom on poverty. Yes, I think this is so important. Uh, What we see just absolutely repeated over and over again, very consistently in the data, is that economic freedom, high scores in economic freedom, are correlated with reductions in poverty. I mean, and, and this is just, we have 45 years of data on this. And so we run these regressions all the time, and the data is very clear that when you increase economic freedom, which it means, right, a a limited government, it means a a legal system that protects people's private property, it means sound money, it means freedom to trade internationally, and it means kind of lower levels of regulation. So those are the five kind of what I call pillars of economic freedom. And so when you have, when when countries score very well on those five things, they eliminate poverty. Mm. I mean, can you imagine? They, they eliminate poverty in their societies. That's not to say that there's no problem. But absolute poverty goes away when you have high levels of economic freedom. It is, and so the beauty of measuring this stuff for, for almost 50 years now is that we can make some really strong conclusions. And we can help governments understand, perhaps, the road to better policy, right? So if you, if you don't overregulate business, if you don't over-regulate labor markets um, and credit markets, then guess what people can do? They can say, hey, I have an idea. I want to open this business, and I'm going to put my idea to the test of the market, and maybe I'll succeed and maybe I won't, but at least I get to try. Yeah. But people who live in the poorest countries, think of you know, Venezuela or Syria, they don't even get the chance to try. So they can't unleash their entrepreneurial spirit and make themselves and the rest of us richer. And that is a tragedy. That is a tragedy, and I agree. Yeah. 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 So when I'm looking at the economic freedom of the world, and they ranked 165 countries and territories for 2020, so the decline affected 146 of the 165. So it's pretty significant. I don't want to go back and talk about what a catastrophe it is. But there are some places like Hong Kong remains in the top position. What gives Hong Kong that uh, that bragging right of being in the top position? Well, if you look at, again, you know, how they score and what their policies are, they have historically taken policies that are um, do very well in terms of economic freedom. So, again, respecting private property rights, um, having a small government relative to the size of the economy. Um, not over-regulating businesses. So their score right now is an 8.59. The highest score you can get is a yeah. 10. So that's a pretty good score, but we all have seen and been watching the news about what's going on in Hong Kong. Their score did drop. I don't know. It was little. It was like, you know, 0.28 or something. But again, the data is lagged. So we oh, we have to watch this over time. I, I suspect 
that some of the civil and political problems that are being, you know, uh, happening in Hong Kong right now are going to further erode that score. So I think what this index and the study of it teaches us, which I talk about with my students often, is that there's no economic destiny. There's just there's just not. Right. What, so, what does that mean? I think it, what it means is any country can go from poverty to riches mm. and any country can go from riches to poverty. Yeah, that's a perfect. It's about ideas and institutions and policies. Perfect answer, Dr. Ann uh, Bradley. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. Lots more with Ann. If you have a question, always wanted to ask an economist a question. Let me know what it is. 877-933-2484. <laughs> We would love for you to share your story about why you love Faith Radio and what has Faith Radio changed the way you think about something or even how you live. We want to hear from you. Your story can encourage others and glorify God. Share what you love about Faith Radio by calling 877-933-2484 and leaving a message today. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Ann Bradley is my guest. She's an economist and a good friend of Faith Radio, and all kinds of questions are coming in, Ann, so I better skip my question that I worked on so hard today. Do you want to just skip my question? Well, that's very gracious of you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, because let me get to listener questions. I think those are much more important. Uh, First one is, is capitalism still the best form of government or system? I love this question. Um... I think that I'm going to try to answer carefully. And what I will say is economists always ask the question, what are the alternatives? And so I think we have to take off the table the idea that there's any economic system that can give us utopian results. Those are dangerous. You know, utopianism, I think, are, it's a very dangerous way of thinking. Socialists promise utopianism, you know, communists, fascists. I think capitalists can fall into that, too. So we're talking about an economic system run by humans, full of humans, right? So we're never going to get perfection. That said, capitalism, the way economists define it, is the private ownership of the means of production, which means people own things. They have money in their bank account. They own their person. They have human creativity. They own land, machines, and they decide what to do with it. Relative to socialism, which is the contrary of that, the public ownership of the means of production, which requires the elimination of private property rights, doesn't work. And it always leads to authoritarianism. And the reason for that is because if we're going to decide together who does what and how often and when, that person that, or that set of people that's going to make that decision needs to have a lot of power. And this never works out well. And so I do think capitalism is the best relative to the alternatives. That doesn't mean it's perfect. It doesn't lead to good things all the time, right? So what I always kind of talk about is if people want to watch pornography in a capitalist market system, they're going to be given that, mm-hmm. right? So you have to have an ethos that underscores what is the motivating culture of society. So that's what matters most for a market economy needs to rest on that. And I think economists are bad on this because they don't either think it's important or they don't talk about it enough. But I think we have to say we want a market order with a limited government, but we need the ethos of prudence and virtue and hard work and all the things we know as Christians that are so important for human flourishing. 
Mm-hmm. Dr. Ann Bradley, can you please explain the Great Reset and how it affects us if it goes on? So, you know, there's been a lot of talk about employment, right, and about kind of how workers are responding to um, the, the, you know, lockdowns and the disruptions in their employment. And so I think a lot of what we're facing right now is um, thinking about how what the role of workers are going to be, what the role of corporations are going to be, um, how we're going to, re, you know, kind of these questions when people talk about the Great Reset is kind of how are we going to build a better world? How are we going to build um, better stakeholders and corporations? And I think sometimes um, this, this idea of the Great Reset assumes that there are people that run the economy, right, that we can actually sit down and think of the economy as the product of someone's mind where smart people mm. lay out a plan for a better way of doing it. Yeah. So you hear this talk a lot. This comes out of the World Economic Forum. And I just the economy just doesn't work that way. So I think this language is a little bit dangerous as well mm-hmm. because it presumes that there are smart people and we can give them charge of resetting, you know, finding better ways of doing things, which we always need to find better ways of doing things, and that they'll be able to figure it out for us. Again, this is just going to lead to authoritarianism and tyranny, but it's going to be done in the name of the common good. It's going to be in the name of the worker against the capitalists, right? So there's real issues that we need to think about that exist in markets, which is concentration of economic power and, you know, workers' rights. These are all real issues that I think people need to take seriously. But I don't think the answer is let's give, you know, the elites of the world <laughs> blank checks to solve the problem. Because yeah. it's just not going to work. I agree. All right, Dr. Ann Bradley, I've heard rumors that there is a financial collapse happening in China right now, but it's not being reported in the news. And so the question maybe is, I guess, twofold. Um, is you, there a financial yes. collapse? Have you heard rumors and is it true? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I have a, a good friend who I just want to shout him, give him a shout out right now. His name is Doug Bando, which is B-A-N-D-O-W. He's great. He's a China expert. And you can just Google his name and read many, many articles he's written on this. Uh, so I kind of look to him um, when I'm thinking about these questions. But he's been saying this for many years. That, not, you know, that, that China, I think the way he describes it, which I appreciate, is it, it's a house built on quicksand. Um, and, and the reason for that is because if you look at kind of the past 40 years in China, there were real economic reforms post-1979 in China that did lead to economic growth. And I'm talking 10 percent growth rates per year. That's amazing. Right. Mm-hmm. That's just very significant. And that's what happens when countries start to emerge out of poverty. We call it catching up growth. So the China experienced in the 80s and 90s catching up growth. Um, but the problem is they haven't they don't score well on economic freedom. They score better than they did 40 years ago. But there's a lot of work to do there. So now, you know, they're considered a, a middle income country, but they have a demographic crisis. They have a genocide crisis. They have a corporatism crisis. So you can build all the bridges and all the highways and all that stuff that you want. That's just basic infrastructure spending. That doesn't stimulate economic growth. Mm -hmm. And so what I think we're seeing is a decline in economic growth in China, and it's because they didn't go all the way. Mm -hmm. They didn't go all the way with the reforms, and they're trying to engineer the economy. And it just – that fails. That fails every time. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what we're seeing. And why are we not hearing as much about it? I can't answer that question. I got it, Um, You know, I don't know. Um, 
I'm not sure, you know, like whether it's a it's a media thing. Uh, I'm sure that's some of it. But I mean, it's real. Um, and I just think that th- what this leads me to, this is also an unpopular opinion that I hold, which I realize. I'm just Friday. not sure it's. It, yes, exactly. I'm not sure it's, China is the global economic threat that people talk about, because I do think it's this house that is ultimately built on not a firm foundation. Yeah. They don't have the, the foundations of economic prosperity and free markets. And mm-hmm. so you can only run that horse so long until yeah. it falls down. Yeah. All right, Dr. Ann Bradley, uh, how does the gold reserve play into the economy? Well, there's a lot of debate about this. I was just at a, a dinner last night where everybody was talking about gold. Uh, this is what economists talk about, right, when they sit around and have dinner, <laughs> I suppose. It's pretty boring for most people. But, you know, there's a lot of talk about going back to the gold standard. There's, there's a contingent of economists who want us to go back onto the gold standard, which would mean that the Federal Reserve cannot arbitrarily um, change the money supply. Um, and so there's, you know, in the literature, there's just, Lots and lots of debates, and there have been for many, many years about whether this is this is a good idea or not. I think the benefit of it is that it it it, it delegitimizes or deconstructs the power that any central bank has over its currency mm-hmm. because it has to be tied to a real store of value rather than being arbitrarily manipulated. And as you see with actions of the Fed right now, you know how much do we change interest rates? How much is too much? How much is too little? These are people that graduated from the top schools with PhDs. They're smart people and they don't mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole point, I think, right, is that the economy is not something you just wrap your brain around and then control. And so even the smartest people in the world don't know what the magic number is. And so I think goal, a gold standard does help with that, right, yeah. because it just takes those questions kind of off the table. Mm-hmm. And we just have two minutes left, so I'm okay. going to throw this at you. And I, I like okay. this question, and it's prefaced by saying – Maybe this isn't an economic question, but I see pictures of homeless camps. So how do these people impact the economy? And is it only crime that helps them survive? So people who are currently homeless in the United States? Yes. Is that what we mean? Yeah. Well, when you see pictures um, of homeless camps, you wonder, how does, how does this impact the economy? I mean, you look at a city like San Francisco, to which used mm-hmm. to be the most beautiful place to go, a vacation mm-hmm. spot, a place where... Uh, businesses would hold conferences all the time. And I know there's major medical conferences that go there regularly. And you think you have to step out of your hotel room into streets that are what they are right now is pretty, pretty scary. Yeah, I, I, this is the way I'll put it. I do think it's an economic question, but I think it's much, much more. I think it's a question of lost potential, lost talent, or, or un, maybe not lost. I think it can be recovered but currently unused human creativity and potential that has been exacerbated by policies that are done in the name of helping those very people. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of the story of what you see in San Francisco. That's really interesting. And thank you for taking time. Uh, You are always uh, such a great resource and you're, you're so thoughtful and I know you love Jesus and you can give us the perspective on what's going on in the economy in, in such a straightforward way and it's so easy to understand so thank you you're my kind of guest oh thanks for having me and have a great weekend you bet thank you so much dr ann rathbone bradley has been my guest we're going to take a break when we come back from that short break we're going to talk to fernando arroya and he is going to talk about veteran suicide that's all next
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Welcome back to the show. If you just join me, you're in for a treat. I'm going to hear an amazing, we're going to hear an amazing story. Fernando Arroyo has written a book called The Shadow of Death, From My Battles in Fallujah to the Battle for My Soul. He returned from his latest deployment in the U.S. Army, and his life started to fall apart. He said, one night after heavy drinking, I placed my pistol in my mouth and thought a prayer. Silence. We're going to hear about that as he now does work helping veterans uh, and their struggle with suicide. So, Given all that's going on in the military right now and the uh, men and women that come home in that similar condition that he found himself in, it's going to be an amazing story. Fernando, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, thank you for serving our country. Um, I look at your picture on the back of your book and I, I just, I have, I have tears well up in my eyes. You, wow. you, you brave men over there fighting uh, for our country. It's amazing. So, I mean, my line at Starbucks was long today. And I was kind of irritated. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's uh, a definitely a unique experience to go to war. Uh, indeed, it is, and I can't imagine the trauma and what you went through. And you come home, and how do you pick up the pieces? Because a lot don't. A lot end up in a very sad story called suicide. Yeah, so many of my friends ended their lives, and to pick up the pieces, um, it takes. It takes effort. It takes a commitment to find community, to not mm-hmm. isolate. It takes uh, work on each veteran's part. And I had to figure out the hard way that it takes a relationship with Jesus Christ. It takes the church community. It takes uh, accountability with church groups and admitting that you need help if you know that you're struggling. Mm-hmm. So maybe you can share your personal story, how you uh, came back from your uh, deployment in Fallujah, and you found yourself kind of in a place of despair. Yeah, well, Fallujah was my first of three deployments. So that was just my first time in combat. Then I went to Afghanistan, and then I deployed again to Beji, Iraq. So I spent over two two years of my life in combat. My last deployment to Beji, Iraq was 15 months. And when I got back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, after about a month and a half of being back in the United States, I... I was discharged, honorably discharged. I got out of the army and I find myself going to a community college out here in California. And my body was here, but my mind was still in Iraq. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the sight, sounds and smells of war. And and I describe it as a a song on repeat in my head. I could hear machine guns and explosions and radio chatter like I was still in Iraq, but I'm here. It took time for me to accept that I wasn't in the military. I, for some reason, I just, I lived out of my duffel bag for over a month thinking that I was going to get called back. Wow. And that call never came. Yeah. So it was a rough transition. I can imagine that. Um, how did you find, how did you start to find fellowship when you came back? And then, cause so, you have so much to process. Uh, you know, right. Yeah. Fernando Arroyo is my guest. His book is called The Shadow of Death. From my battles in Fallujah to the battle for my soul. So we got we got some serious work to do, Fernando. Yeah, definitely. So when I when I came back, yeah, I was going to church, but I went from being surrounded by 
by brothers that valued my life more than my own, and I valued their life more than mine, to then coming back here, and like you said, your line at Starbucks today was long. And, right. Uh, you know, very annoying. Yeah, very annoying, right? Like everyone, and I'm not, you know, just, I'm not accusing you of anything, but <laughs> a lot of people in this country are very selfish, self-centered. That'd be it's, me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the line is too long. Get out of my way. No, uh, no, no. Traffic is slow. We're like, cl- cutting people off. No, we, we don't get it. Uh, trust me, I'm being very humble about that. I'm I'm saying yeah. uh, you do very serious things, and, and I believe I do serious things as well, but they're, they're not apples and oranges. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, from going to uh, from being in a brotherhood to then coming to this country, everyone's out to look out for themselves, and yeah. I was used to you know looking out for the guys next to me. Now I felt alone. Even at church, I didn't feel comfortable sharing what I was going through and how I was struggling to adapt because I thought that if I shared uh, having nightmares and I was struggling to adapt, and that I share if I shared what I did in combat and you know the people I hurt that I would be ridiculed or looked down on, you know, as being, I just felt bad for the things I did. I had a lot of guilt and shame that I was holding on to. So that kept me from approaching these holy people, you know, like, sure. Oh, I, I can't share what I'm going through. So it was a journey for me to find community. I didn't have it, to be honest. I went to church on Sundays, said goodbye to everybody. See you next Sunday. And that was it. Yeah. And eventually Maybe three years after I got out, that's where, like, the nightmares got worse. That's where I just uh, started questioning my purpose in life. And, and again, I kept this all to myself. My family didn't know. My church didn't know. I was just isolating. And I just I was going deeper and deeper into this darkness. Mm-hmm. When, when you find yourself in this darkness, and there's a, a lot of people that— find themselves in darkness and and I'm not comparing again your darkness to anybody else's because I have a difficult time understanding uh what you went through even as I started reading your book in chapter 1 you talk about things that are are so difficult to put my head around that I and I know you're just speaking truthfully as to what you experienced but it is it is really hard to read and I say that in a in a, in a way that I'm saying I'm challenged by what I'm reading. It's not yeah. like I want to stop reading it. It's just that it's hard to it's hard to read. Yeah, I get that a lot from people. And um, part of I mean, my testimony is I just I want to be truthful and I want to share because in order for other veterans, the goal is to help to tell veterans, look, I understand the struggles. I've been there. There is hope. There is hope. And in order for me to reach out to veterans and save lives and to help uh, the families of veterans understand what veterans go through is to, to share that, that darkness. And like you said in Chapter 1, yeah, it, it was just a, a sad day. To be honest, every time I share that story, um, I feel, I still to this day, I, I, I feel a sense of, of humiliation where I can't believe I, I reached that low point in my life, but I have to remember that God is there. God was there. He is there now. And he is the one who saved me. And he is the one who, you know, um, there's no, no guilt or shame when you believe in Christ. There is forgiveness and there is love and hope. So 
that's the message I want to share with veterans. Yeah. Fernando Arroyo is my guest. His book is called The Shadow of Death, From My Battles in Fallujah to the Battle for My Soul. I, Fernando, I'd love for you to talk about um, how self-medication is what a lot of people, it seems that, come back from uh, the military, find themselves in. Yeah, self-medication. So self-medicating, for people who don't know, is using uh, alcohol or drugs to numb the pain. Um, instead of dealing with the the trauma, what a lot of veterans do is use substances to just kind of tune everything out. And I've heard so many stories as I've been, not only from the guys I've served with, now that my story's out there, the guys I serve with are, are I'm getting phone calls, I'm getting messages from them admitting that they have been self-medicating. Um, I'm getting messages from families where, you know, they of Vietnam veterans and they say, oh, my dad or my, my, my uncle or grandfather served in war and would self-medicate. So this is a trend among military personnel of consuming large amounts of alcohol, um, becoming addicted to pain medication <clears throat> in order to cope mm-hmm. with what's happening inside. And I even know of guys who were wounded in combat received morphine in the hospital to help numb the pain of their wounds and then became addicted to that. So um, self-medication is using substances to numb the pain. That is not the best way to deal with any problem in life. And what has to happen is we get back to the community. We get back to um, seeking help, whether it's, I mean, I recommend reach out to the VA. If you're a veteran, there are psychologists and clinical social workers what you share is confidential. If you're at your church, um, find the pastor, find the, the, the groups, the men's groups that are confidential. What you share is confidential, and you can be vulnerable, you can share, and, and that's what needs to happen is processing these things, talking about these things, and bringing it to God, most importantly, praying to God. I think of... Uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where when they sinned, they heard God walking in the garden and they hid. And that seems to be human nature. We hide. Mm -hmm. We tend to hide. That doesn't help. And God already knows all things. You're not hiding anything from God. You can go to church and smile. You can, um, like me, you know, I had a smile on my face. No one in my family or church knew what I was going through. And deep down inside, I was hurting. It wasn't until I started to confess what I was going through and I sought help that I found real healing. And it's, it's not instant. It's not instant. And to this day, I still have struggles. This is, the memories are not erased from my mind, and, but it's a journey, you yeah. know, this process that we call sanctification, where it's a lifelong process, but my life is so much better now, and I want veterans to get the help that they need. Yeah, amen to that, Fernando. I, I do as well want uh, veterans to get the help they need. You know that old saying that if you walk eight miles into the forest, it'll take eight miles to walk out of it? Yeah. I mean, it, it is not an overnight thing, and the trauma that's associated with what you and your mates uh, experienced is something that requires lots of patience. Yeah, true. Yeah, so when I'm going to take a little break, when I do come back, I want to ask you uh, a little bit about how we best come alongside uh, veterans, especially the ones that may be reluctant to want to even talk to us. I mean, I've come from a generation, I mean, the greatest generation, the World War II folks, they're on their way out almost entirely by now. 
Um, and they usually uh, didn't want to talk about anything. And it was yeah. rare that somebody would open up. seems that I've heard stories about them opening up towards the very end of their life. Um, so how do we, I want to ask when we come back from the break, how we as believers can come alongside veterans and give them hope and encouragement and, and try to build a friendship relationship with them. Fernando yeah. Arroyo is my guest. His book is called The Shadow of Death, From My Battles in Fallujah to the Battle for My Soul. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. Welcome back to the show. I'm so glad to have Fernando Arroyo on my show. I always hope I say that last name correct. Is it Ar- Arroyo? Arroyo. In Spanish, it's Arroyo. You got to roll the R. Arroyo. Ah, yes. yes. <laughs> how, how am I doing, Fernando? That's you know you're doing great. Good. Good. So, uh, is Spanish your first language? Yes. That you have got brilliant English. Oh my goodness, that you speak beautifully. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I, I, I suppose you started learning it as just a little baby boy, didn't you? Yeah, I grew up bilingual. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's a dream of mine. Uh, I don't even speak English that well. So, you know, I, I'm very intimidated by people who are bi and trilingual. I think that's very cool. <laughs> All right, let's get back to the topic at hand. Uh, your book is called The Shadow of Death, From My Battles in Fallujah to the Battles for My Soul. And Fernando's got a real heart for uh, veterans who have come back who are struggling. And many have committed suicide. Many of the people he was in battle with. And, of course, it's broken his heart and he wants to as a follower of jesus to come alongside and and make a difference and uh, we want to support him and support our veterans and you know the world the world war ii the, you know the greatest generation they're they're pretty much almost entirely gone um and a lot of them were very um tight-lipped they didn't really want to talk about their experience and it i don't know if if you and your fellow soldiers who have come back are you guys willing to talk or are you a little bit tight-lipped as well Tight-lipped as well. Okay. So something that has changed from, you know, we talk about the greatest generation or even the wars in the past is social media. A lot of guys, I've heard stories of guys that served in World War II and even Vietnam. Once you leave and you get out of the army, well, that's it. You lose contact with the guys you serve with. And today we have social media and I'm friends with most of the guys I serve with. We still keep in contact. I mean, over social media, we don't share about our experiences that much. But when we are in person, we've had reunions and then all the stories come out. Like we all hang out and these stories come out and sometimes family members are there. I can't count how many times family members hearing our war stories and they're shocked. They never knew this about their son or daughter. They had no idea. I had no idea my son went through this or was in these types of operations and Mm -hmm. in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. But as far as like sharing with with family members and and, and being open with people, tight-lipped. Yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised. Fernando Araya is my guest. (laughs) I'm going to try it. I'm going to do my very best. And his book is called The Shadow of Death. And in your book, you say, and this breaks my heart, Fernando, you say, maybe I've crossed over to the dark side. Maybe I deserve to burn in hell. In your your work with veterans, do you find that to be a common feeling, and how do you help them? Yeah, a lot of veterans carry the guilt and shame of having carried things out that were necessary, yet 
in order to fight evil, you have to do mm. similar things that evil people do. I mean, it's just there comes a point where there are no negotiations where armed men who are out to murder women and children must be stopped. And that doesn't mean that because you do it for the right reasons that the horrors you witness are just that you're immune to them. It's, you know, good people doing bad things. Mm -hmm. You know, what we had a saying is we do bad things to bad people. And that's a, that's a burden that we carry. And, um, so it's very difficult for veterans when they come back to be able to openly share with those who have not been in combat. Something interesting is I talked to a friend yesterday from Israel and in Israel, everyone has to serve at least two years in the Israeli army. It's a small nation. Mm -hmm. And because of that, there's this bond where it's not uncommon for people to understand like if there, there's everyone has served, right? They all understand military service and training and all that. In this country, it's an all voluntary force now, and it's a big country and less than 1% of Americans serve. So it's hard to find people to relate to and to be able to open up people who will understand what it was like to go to war. Mm -hmm. That's why veterans remain tight lipped. Mm, that's so interesting. Uh, Fernando, I, I think I heard, and this expression relative to World War II where somebody said you kill the enemy because you hate them and then you end up hating them because you kill them. I know that's kind of a philosophical, I have to sit and think yeah. about that one for a minute. But while during deployment, um, when you are doing bad things to bad people, does prayer seem something that's right at the front of your mind or do you forget to pray or what would you say is the case with many of the Christians in the military? Are you praying all day long or are you not praying at all or somewhere in between? You know, it varies from veteran to veteran. I myself grew up going to church and what I found, my personal experience was I began to question God's goodness after experiencing the loss of friends. And um, I began, to, so my faith was tested. Uh, there were other veterans that, you know, I can't speak for them, but I'm sure they, they prayed a lot more than I did. Mm -hmm. um, when, when I prayed, it would be before what's called leaving the wire. So we're, we're about to exit the base and go carry out a combat operation. And I would just ask God for forgiveness of my sins. And I said, if I die, may I awaken your presence? Yeah. And then, boom, let's go. Let's go out there. But I also questioned his goodness because of the things that I saw. And I wondered... How God could, uh, how such a good God could allow, you know, these bad things to happen, and that was an internal struggle in itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, so yeah, prayer. Oh, go ahead. No, please finish your thought. No, I was just saying prayer. Looking back now, I should have leaned in on God a lot more than I did. Of course. Instead, what I did was push Him away, like so many veterans that I know. Some even they say they don't believe in Christ anymore wow. um, because of what they saw in war. Uh, I'm glad I'm still a believer. I'm glad that, you know, it, it was a journey. I mean, my book, it's, you know, you'll, you'll, if you read it or get the audio book, you'll understand the journey where God was always there. It was me who was pushing him away. Yeah. Talking to Fernando Arroyo, 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 and, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to nail this by the end of the interview, Fernando. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. You're getting closer. I know, I know I am. Trust me, I know this. <laughs> and, the, and the book is The Shadow of Death from My Battles in Fallujah 
to the battles for my soul. And I know it's Suicide Awareness Month, so maybe what signs should friends and family be looking for if they suspect someone is suicidal? Uh, one of the biggest ones is isolation. When oh, yeah. um, you see someone not wanting to talk, not uh, going to family functions, not leaving their home, that's a red flag. Or someone that is uh, not just isolating, uh, there's also other signs like Maybe they, they, they're unemployed. It's kind of like these signs of hopelessness that mm-hmm. they're giving up. They're giving up on themselves. Their hygiene is poor. Uh, these are some of the signs. But I think isolation is a big one because you can look good and have a job, but how well do you know the person, right? Like, how well are they opening up? Are they, do you really know the person? Like, I was smiling and I was happy even at church, and people knew I was a veteran. Mm-hmm. But outside of church, I wasn't hanging out with anyone from church. Oh, wow. You know, I was just like, cool, see you next Sunday. Just like show up, smile, and leave. So it's important to get people involved. Know your neighbor. You know, as God says, uh, commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves. That means approaching those whom you encounter. And if they're veterans, don't ask about war. Don't ask about, have you killed anyone? That's a common question. That's annoying. Mm -hmm. Just get to know. Be a friend. Get to know the veteran, mm-hmm. let them share what they want to share and you'll build a relationship. And that works with people in general, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Fernando, let's work as a team. I think you and I are better as a team. I'll say I'm speaking to Fernando and then you say your last name. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, the book is called shadow of death. Uh, I'm speaking with Fernando. Arroyo. Thank you so much. Um, t- <laughs> talk about what might've been an angelic experience you had uh, and maybe in the form of a homeless man. So I had finished my bachelor's degree. And, um, I really didn't know what career I was going to get into. And so I was kind of lost. And I remember going to the gym. And then when I'm coming back, I, I was looking for parking and street parking. And, and there's a school across from my apartment where I lived at at the time. And in front of the school were benches. And there's this man sitting in front of, in front of the school on the bench. He looks at me like he knows me, and he smiles, hmm. and he has, he has these new like, papers next to him, and he gathers his things, and he stands up smiling at me like, like I'm there to pick him up, hmm. you know? And I'm just like, oh, great, a homeless man. He's going to ask me for money. I don't have any. So I park, and, and he walks up to my truck, and I just I grab my things quickly, and I start walking away. I didn't want to talk to him. And he says, brother, brother. And I'm like, brother? Like, that, the way he said it, so... I turned around. I said, look, I don't have any money. He says, I don't want money. He says, I'm, I'm living at a homeless shelter. I've been walking all day looking for a job. He opened up, he unrolled the newspaper he had, and he had copies of the classified ads, and he had uh, copies of his resume. He says, I've been walking since 5 a.m., and he says, all I want is something to eat. Brother, will you give me something to eat? Mm. I said, that's all you want? He's like, said, yes. I said, well, I just came back from the gym. I got to eat, so... I invited him in my place and we, you know, he sat in my, my, in my kitchen while I started cooking. And then I, I heard him singing a hymn. I said, are you a Christian? And he says, Oh yes, brother, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. Amen. I'm like, Oh, okay. Me too. And he says, brother, I have something else I need to ask. And I'm like, here we go. Mm-hmm. You can ask for money. He says, I don't have any socks and I've been walking all day. Can you give me socks? I said, yeah, I gave him two pairs of socks. Mm-hmm. And he's so happy putting socks on his feet. Then he says, 
brother, I need something else. I'm like, okay, he's going to ask for money. And then he says, I need a Bible. Do you have a Bible you can give me? So I give him a Bible reluctantly because I had two of them, and I I thought, man, I don't want to give my Bibles away. And I gave him a Bible, and he was so happy. Then we prayed and we ate, and then we started talking. He asked me what I do for a living. I said, I just finished school last week. I'm looking for work. No one is hiring me. I was having trouble getting hired. He says, brother, God has a job for you. I said, okay. And then I walked him out, and there's an alley behind the apartment where I, where I used to live. And we prayed together in the alley. We hugged goodbye. He says, God has a job for you. And I said, thank you. And, you know, God has a job for you too, I told him. And then he, he walked away. And then me being Mr. Curious, I'm like, where is this guy going? Mm-hmm. You know, he's, and I'm kind of in the corner of the alley watching him. And then once he turns the street corner, I sprint to the corner. And then I look, he's gone. The next day I got a phone call and I got a job. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. You might have been entertaining an angel. <laughs> That's what I thought. Yeah. 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 Well, Fernando, thank you so much for doing the show. It's been a delight having you on and meeting you. And I think our teamwork is exceptional. Yeah, so, I mean, we I, got it down. I think you could fool people into thinking it was your voice. Yeah, but I'm not going to do that because I'm trying <laughs> to be uh, you know, transparent with my listeners. So you will help me with uh, my exit of this interview, yeah, so I appreciate it. Sure. My guest uh, has been Fernando Arroyo, and his book is The Shadow of Death, From My Battles in Fallujah to the Battle for My Soul. We'll take a break. We'll come right back with lots more. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.